Hello, and welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm guest host Emily Wilkins, a Congress and campaigns reporter with Bloomberg Government, and I'm joined today with senior reporter Greg Jabreau. Today, we're trying something new, our first ever speed lightning round. Greg and I will recap 12 of the most interesting races we're watching, each in under 60 seconds. These aren't necessarily the most competitive races, but all of them are competitive and all will tell us something about voters, issues, and the direction of the country. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts. But first, as always, we bring you Jero's Gem. Thank you, Emily. Jero's Gem refers to a political number of note that I introduce every episode of Down Ballot Counts. And this episode's gem is 35. That's the number of U.S. Senate races that are at stake in the November 8 elections, and that will determine which party controls a chamber that is presently 50-50 and that Democrats lead only with the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris. Republicans are the defending party in 21 of those 35 contests, and Democrats are the incumbent party in 14 of them. Most of those 35 elections, however, will be won comfortably by the incumbent party, and the lion's share of campaign spending by the political parties and outside groups like super PACs has been concentrated on a small subset of those 35 races. There's been enormous spending and national attention focused on what you might call the big four Senate states of Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the Nevada seat of Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, and the Georgia seat defended by Senator Raphael Warnock are among the toughest that Democrats are defending, if not the toughest, while the Pennsylvania seat of retiring Republican Pat Toomey and the Wisconsin seat that Senator Ron Johnson is defending are probably the most difficult holds for the Republican Party. Democratic Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona also has a close race in his bid for a full six-year term. Republicans are keeping it close in Colorado New Hampshire, but the Democratic incumbents are favored to win re-election there. Democrats are running competitively for Republican-held seats in Florida, North Carolina, and Ohio, which are mildly Republican-leaning states. Emily, I really look forward to homing in more closely on a few of these Senate races in our next segment. And that is your Jero's Gem. Thank you so much, Greg. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. All right, so this is how it's going to work. Our producer, David, has an air horn with him, and he is going to stop us after 60 seconds exactly. So we're going to keep this short, sweet, and to the point. So our producer, David, is ready with the timer, and we will begin with the Nevada Senate race. So it's a key pickup opportunities for Republicans. Uh, Currently, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, the first Latina senator, is defending her seat. She's the most at-risk Democratic senator right now. Republican nominee Adam Laxalt, former attorney general, endorsed by both Trump and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. One big thing to watch in this race, about one of five midterm voters are expected to be Hispanic. While that demographic is not a monolithic, they're really important to watch 
as both parties are making a play for Hispanic voters this year, having advertisements and other outreach items in Spanish. Nevada is also really interesting because it's a great case study for inflation and pandemic recovery. Obviously, the state's pretty unique when it comes to the entertainment and tourism industries, also a housing shortage in the state. So those are some big things to be watching on. Uh, Cortez Masto is also trying to get into the abortion uh, debate, even though the state has uh, a right to abortion in their constitution. She's framing this in terms of a federal ban. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well done, Emily. That was pretty good. Okay, my first race is the Georgia U.S. Senate race. Perhaps no race has commanded as much national attention as this one in recent days. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock is facing Republican Herschel Walker, the former University of Georgia football star whose early endorsement by former President Donald Trump enabled him to sail to the Republican nomination without serious opposition and much early vetting of his candidacy. This race was rocked last week when an explosive report in the Daily Beast said Walker paid for a woman's abortion some years ago which would be inconsistent with a campaign platform that includes opposition to abortion. Walker has denied the charges. I'm interested to see what effect, if any, this news has on the polling. Not long ago, news like this might have scuttled a Senate campaign or caused supporters to withdraw their backing or campaign funding. But it seems like Republicans are still behind Walker and intent on defeating Warnock in a state that will help decide control of the Senate. Possible this race could require a runoff election in December because there's a libertarian candidate on the November 8th ballot, and Georgia law requires a runoff. Requires a majority of the vote to win, I should say. <laughs> Just got another wire there. All right, moving on with the Pennsylvania Senate race. This seat is held by retiring Republican Senator Pat Toomey, and it's a key pickup opportunity for the Democrats. Republican Mehmet Oz, who you and I both know better as Dr. Oz, is running against Democratic nominee John Fetterman. Now, Fetterman had the lead for a while, but the polls have really narrowed as Oz has raised serious concerns about Fetterman's health. Fetterman suffered a stroke in May. At the time, it was pretty serious. He's been back out on the campaign trail, really trying to show voters that he has the stamina that's needed, but he is still having a little bit of a problem with some of his words. He will mix words up or occasionally skip over words. He says that this is basically a, a sort of a speech problem and not uh, a cognition problem. The state also serves as a test for the Democrats' ability to appeal to blue-collar workers. Uh, they went for Trump in 2016 and really in 2020, but Biden's been working to appeal to voters without a college degree. He's kept unions and union jobs in the spot spotlight during his time as president. This oh. <laughs> Race number four, Wisconsin U.S. Senate race. Wisconsin may be the swingiest of the swing states. It's the only state where both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections were decided by fewer than one percentage point, uh, backing Donald Trump in 2016 and then Joe Biden in 2020. Ron Johnson is the only incumbent Republican senator seeking re-election this year in a state Biden carried and he's seeking a third term against Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Johnson and his Republican allies are running heavily on crime and public safety policy here, accusing Barnes of wanting to, quote, defund the police. Like many Democratic candidates seeking to inoculate themselves from criticism of their public safety policies, Barnes aired an ad from a retired Racine police sergeant who said Barnes is very supportive of law enforcement. If elected, Barnes would be the first black senator to represent Wisconsin, uh, Nonpartisan political analysts consider this race a toss-up and polls show a close race, but I think a Barnes win would be a clear upset. The Wisconsin polling was off in 2016, and we'll see how it is fares in the 2020, uh, I'm sorry, the 2022 election this time around. 
Up next, we're moving on to house races. And first, we have Alaska's at-large race. Now, this is the seat that opened up after the passing of Republican Don Young. Uh, he served for decades in this seat. Uh, so it's, number one, sort of the really chance for Alaskans to pick someone new. And it's also going to be a test of Alaska's uh, ranked choice voting. Now, we've already seen a little bit of action in Alaska because there was the special election to fill Don Young's seat. That was won by Democrat Mary Patola. And she's obviously in serving in Congress now. Uh, that seems to make the race a little bit more friendly for her. You see election handicappers like Sabato's Crystal Ball ranking at Lean Democratic. But she still faces a tough race. The special election was pretty close. She's going to be facing Republican Sarah Palin, hearing that name again for the first time, as well as Nicholas the third. And so that's going to be another very interesting race to watch on a number of topics. All right, Texas's 34th district. This race in the once overwhelmingly Democratic Rio Grande Valley is one of two U.S. House contests that pit two incumbents as a result of redistricting and the only one that's highly competitive. Here we have Republican Representative Myra Flores, who won a special election in June under old district lines against Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, who now represents an adjacent district that was redrawn by Republicans to favor their party. So Gonzalez is seeking re-election in the 34th district. Had the 34th existed in the 2020 presidential election, Biden would have carried it by 16 points, making it the most pro-Biden district in the nation where Republican incumbent is seeking re-election. This race will test whether Republicans can build on the gains they made in the heavily Hispanic Rio Grande Valley in the 2020 election, in part by drawing sharp contrast with national Democrats on energy and border security policies. Gonzalez has promoted education, and Flores has aired English and Spanish language ads in which he says she will work to give the border control the resources they need. Moving on to Indiana's first district. Now, this is the district that's up in the northwest corner of the state. So we're talking about the suburbs of Chicago here. And this is obviously another area that you've seen be hit really hard, uh, sort of in that rust belt zone, a lot of manufacturing, a lot of industry. You're talking about a lot of uh, working class blue collar voters here who, again, you know, they might have gone for Biden, but they've been leaning more and more toward the Republicans and the Republican Party. Uh, the lawmaker defending the seat is Democrat Frank Mervan. I hope I pronounced his last name right. He is a freshman lawmaker in Congress, and he is up against Republican Jennifer Ruth Green. Now, she's a really, really interesting Republican nominee for a number of reasons. She's Black as well as Asian. She's an Air Force veteran, and that has come across in a lot of the ads that she's put forward. She's trying to give Indianans a new voice, a new individual to vote for. California's 22nd district. This race is in a heavily Hispanic agricultural swath of California's Central Valley. The candidates are Republican Representative David Valadeo and Democratic State Assemblyman Rudy Salas. Redistricting made this district a little friendlier to Democrats. Joe Biden would have carried it by 13 percentage points, though Valadeo has crossover appeal and has won multiple elections in part by voting for Democratic bills on immigration. Valadeo's ads have portrayed him as a bipartisan problem solver. Valadeo's most conspicuous party bucking vote came in January 2021 when he was one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump after the attack on the Capitol. Valadeo is the only one who faces a competitive re-election, and he's been running ads attacking Salas on taxes generally and on gas taxes specifically in a state where the price of gasoline is still very high. Uh, Democratic ads have attacked Valadeo's opposition to abortion. This race is of high interest to House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who represents an adjacent congressional district. 
Moving up the coast to Oregon's fifth district. Yeah, we have a competitive race in Oregon. Uh, this district spans the suburbs of Portland to the central part of the state. It was held by Kurt Schrader, but he lost his primary to progressive candidate Jamie McLeod Skinner. Uh, Skinner ran as a progressive, but has since tried to portray herself as a little bit closer to the middle. In a recent ad, she said she was going to bring her, and David, I'm sorry, we have to edit this, bring her pickers to D.C. for the lobbyists, as well as folks in her own party. So she's she's really trying to be a bit of a rabble rouser here. Republican is Lori Chavez de Rimmer. Uh, she has tried to tie her Democratic opponent to Black Lives Matter protests as well as anti-policing. Obviously, uh, this was some big, big issues in Portland and the Portland suburbs, and it has become a bit of a defining aspect of the race. McLeod Skinner recently put out an ad with a former police chief backing her. And of course, other issues like the economy and abortion are also going to be playing into this race. Virginia's second district, I must acknowledge a parochial interest in this race because I grew up in Virginia Beach where the contest between Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria and Republican State Senator Jen Kiggins will make any political handicappers list of the most competitive House races. Virginia's second is a Navy stronghold, and so it's perhaps fitting that Luria and Kiggins are both Navy veterans. I spent this past weekend in the district visiting my family, and while we were watching baseball playoffs and Sunday football in Jeopardy, I saw political ads that Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee ads attack Higgins on abortion, while spots from the Congressional Leadership Fund, the super PAC aligned with House Republican leaders, unfavorably link Luria to Joe Biden and show Luria at a political function saying, thank God that Joe Biden was elected. Virginia has an early poll closing time at 7 p.m. Eastern time, so this will be a race to watch on election night to see which way the national political winds are blowing. Again, we are heading up the coast, East Coast, this time to Maine 2nd District, where Democrat Jared Golden is defending his seat against a name that will be familiar to many Mainers, former, former Republican Rep Bruce Poliquin. Now, Poliquin didn't run in 2020, and he only lost by a single percentage point in 2018. The district leans Republican even more so after redistricting. But Greg, I really can't think of another Democrat who has done as much as Jared Golden to separate himself from his party. The list of bills that he's voted no on is just massive. He voted no on the assault weapons ban, the other gun bill. He voted no on Build Back Better. He voted no on the COVID stimulus package that Democrats are running on. Still, Poliquin's trying to tie Golden to his party as well as Biden. And who knows, in a year where historical winds are blowing against Democrats and Biden has a particularly low poll rating, it could potentially work. But Golden does have a really good case to make as far as being independent from his party. And finally, Kansas's third district, this race in Metro Kansas City, pits two-term Democratic Congresswoman Sharice Davids against Republican activist Amanda Atkins in a rematch of a 2020 race that Davids won by 10 percentage points. Republican redistricting carved out about two-thirds of Wyandotte County, which is heavily Democratic, while adding more rural and Republican-leaning territory to the third district to make it more difficult for Davids to win re-election. This is the state that in August voted to preserve abortion rights in its state constitution. And in this suburban district, the pro-abortion rights position decisively defeated the anti-abortion position. As such, Davids and Democrats are drawing contrasts with Adkins on abortion. And they're also linking her to her former boss, former Governor Sam Brownback. Adkins and her Republican allies are linking Davids to President Biden and Speaker Nancy Pelosi and saying the Congresswoman aligns with them too frequently on votes. 
And that is it. 12 races, 12 minutes. Great job, Greg. We did it. We did it. Um, thank you so much to our producer, David, for keeping us on track there. We really do appreciate it. Um, and of course, we will be back uh, with another episode before the elections hit, as well as a wrap-up episode after the elections. And that will do it for our current episode today. It was hosted by myself, Emily Wilkins, and Greg Giroux. Our producer is David Schultz, and our executive producer is Josh Block. We'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic nomination for president and went on to endorse Joe Biden. Be sure to check out all the great politics coverage at our website, about.bgov.com. We'll see you next time. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.